Hey everybody, welcome back to the newest episode of The Pixelist. I'm Will, that's Blake, and we're here to talk about all the nerdy things we enjoy. Today, that's a little Exandria Unlimited calamity. Which, nice. uh, bro, I've been so excited to talk to you about this. I mean, we're only two episodes deep. I was going to say every time, so maybe two isn't enough to use the phrase every time. But every time, I've been so excited to talk about this. Same, samesies. And um, that's that's it. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, yep. see you guys next time. Yeah. Uh, how, how are you doing today? Before we jump into things, good. Yeah, it's good. I feel like life is. I guess it's a sign that things aren't that hectic if we're like recording before Thursday. <laughs> so right. Yeah. Um, I know we were like kind of tentatively ready yesterday, um, but then didn't actually sit down till today. It's Tuesday, so we got a couple days lead time. Um, hopefully, getting back to our normal schedule at some point. Um, but yeah, I'm good. How about you? How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. I um, uh, I, I was, you know, that I suffered a head injury, but I was I was about to launch into that, but I was like, they probably don't know what we're talking about because I don't think we talked about it on the podcast. But head's doing good, so I'm doing good. Nice, uh, yeah. That was pretty, I guess, cryptic and bizarre for everyone else. But yeah, uh, he banged his head. Is yeah, you know, there's some bleeding, maybe some potential stitches, but yeah, but we're good. Our co-host is good. He has a a weird uh uh slight um i can't think of the word to make the joke now <laughs> so just like mind. i completely like new personality yeah something like that but um but yeah hopefully you good. guys good hopefully you guys who are listening hopefully you are doing well today and hopefully all of you are enjoying Alexandria unlimited calamity will let's hear it man what'd you think of the episode oh oh <laughs> we're doing this before the recap today uh, oh yeah, do we usually we usually do it after, don't we? We usually do it after, but we can do it now. We'll do a, we'll do a pre and then a post is what we'll do. Okay, okay. Uh loved it. I mean, this is some insanely high-level D&D and I mean, when two of the best DMs on the planet collaborate, this is the stuff you get and so amazing. Yeah, it was really amazing. Um really enjoyed it a lot. Um I'm trying not to, st- to stall because I have a child screaming in the background. I don't know if you can hear it, but I don't want to do the. I don't want to do the recap with a screaming child in the I, background. <laughs> I don't. I don't think I can hear it. Uh, maybe okay. I'm not hearing anything, so I think I'm think just you're pretending okay. I can't hear it too. So, <laughs> but um, no, I loved it. I thought it was really good. Um, this was a, a super lore heavy episode. Uh, I actually watched it twice, um, which. I mean, I, I think any episode of Critical Role is worth watching twice uh, that I've seen so far. I've enjoyed all of it. Um, this one, I enjoyed it so much. I wanted to watch it again. Uh, and also, there was so much lore in yeah. it that I felt like I needed to watch it again. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, that's kind of been true of me. I haven't like start to finish watched both episodes twice, but I've rewatched so many sections of each one that I feel like I basically have. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot to piece together. I don't know if you've been noticing, but I've tweeted at both Matt and Brennan asking them clarifying questions because I'm just trying to piece together like all the different lore and stuff. Uh, neither well, have responded yet, but you know, fingers crossed. Maybe go yeah. toss us a like on those tweets for those of you listening. Uh, maybe help uh, me get their attention. Maybe um, uh, be a little passive aggressive, guys, and comment and be like, <laughs> yo, why don't you guys respond to your fans? I mean... <laughs> 
Look at the next four sided die. They're like, we hate that one guy. Yeah. The Gosh, those, are, those dudes are so annoying. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, do you want to do our little recap, maybe? And then yeah, we I don't jump know in? if uh, little is the correct operative gonna word. Tough. I'm going to do my best to truncate and <laughs> focus on the more important things because I'm doing the second half today. And obviously, yeah. that whole, you guys know what scene I'm talking about. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to do my best. To keep Definitely between the two of us, Will is the one who can run away with listen, <laughs> run away with the details. So um, I'll I'll keep mine as brief as possible. If you do too, all right, all right, all right. Well, hey, if you're just checking out the video for the first time, we do a recap of the episode just to make sure everyone's on the same page. Especially since it's a five-hour episode, you might miss a detail here or there, and then we peel that replay out or that recap out as a separate video. So if you're watching just the recap. You can click on the link in the episode description and see our full breakdown. And heck, if you don't have any friends who watch Critical Role, uh, which is the case for me and Will, and you want to join in the conversation, go to our YouTube channel, jump into the video, and leave a comment and let us know what you thought of the episode. We'd love to engage with you and interact with you. So having said that, let's talk about... Uh, what happened on episode two of Alexandria Unlimited Calamity? Uh, this one was called, I think, Bitterness and Dread. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, great. So, uh, like Will and I joked, I'm gonna be try. I'm gonna try to be as brief as possible. So much lore in this episode, and so I'll try to summarize where I can. But the episode opens up with Sarah basically looking over the body of this cultist and the cracked mirror uh, nearby that Vespin Chloris did the jump scare. This awesome moment in the previous episode, and he inspects the Hopinod. Um, which is like the the automaton steward, you know, sort of the lowest level of, that we've seen so far of automatons. And something odd is as he opens up, he doesn't know a lot about automatons, but as he opens it up, he's expecting to see like an engine or some kind of machinery that implies how it works. And instead, he finds basically nothing. The the inner workings are missing. It'd be like opening a car hood and the engine's not there. Um, so this naturally strikes him as on, he gets a ping on his sending stone in his pocket and it's his son who's phoning in to say that his daughter is sneaking out and going to one of these replenishment parties. It's a really great scene. Um, they have a touching moment where Seraph says, Hey, I love you, son. Um, me being the cynic, I'm like, Oh no, one of these guys is dying for sure. Um, the son asks, Hey, when's mom going to be home? And Seraph's like, as you know, she's an important scientist, hopefully, hopefully soon. So um, other than that, the and there's a lot of cuts to different party members during this first half, by the way. The scene cuts over to Nidus, who is heading to back over to the Golden Scythe, uh, where these automatons are created. And he goes to one of his protégés, Alessander, uh, who's sort of enjoying the party and is wearing this candle on his hat, and basically says to Alessander, hey, I need four automaton stat. And Alessander's like, well, we, it's the replenishment. We can't spare that at all. Like, everything's accounted for. And he's like, no, like, this is an emergency. I need them now. Give me basically like you know what i need and alessandra's like you mean you want the taxman and there's this really cool moment like of tension across the the cast who's like the taxman that sounds <laughs> i can't be good right and basically he brings out these four hulking steel golems that have these swords on their back that are just incredible and alessandra mentions like these were intended for the month of the replenishment uh, they're supposed to be in mint condition and nice basically gives his word and says i'll have them back in mint condition you don't have to worry about that 
So he takes a porter over to the Meridian Labyrinth, where Laren is at the heart of Avalir. It's these series of engines that are whirring and moving. And there's this large machine with the swinging pendulum. And she is basically doing some final tests to activate a device, an engine that she's been building and working on for some time. Nidus arrives with these golems who basically assist in getting everything in place. And she takes the remains of the solar bow and places it in the machine. It fills with golden energy. And as this happens, as she basically activates the machine, one of the ley lines of Exandria becomes visible and begins flowing through the room, flowing through them. Nidus has this awesome moment of like covering his eyes and just the awe of, of all of it. And something of interest is Laren is holding this small, think of it as like a toy boat, but this small lay rudder that lifts and then begins to fade and disappears and goes away and the question becomes where did it go to and laren basically smiles is almost in tears um she's clutching the locket of evandrin that evandrin had given her a long time ago and basically says implying to evandrin um it was worth it like our sacrifices were worth it and it's very much an implication that something she did in working with evandrin caused evandrin's death it's a very big moment uh, she also turns to Nidus and basically says, now because of this, um, it's not going to be a question of where Avalir goes on Exandria next, but where across the planes of existence, implying that now they can travel across anywhere, um, which is pretty incredible. There's only one small issue. There is a, a sensor, a large alarm that goes off, basically letting them know that 8% of Avalir's power has been used. And she's like, how could this have happened? And most of this power has come from a nearby engine called the Arboreal Calyx. Uh, this is where the lore can get a bit fuzzy, so hang in with me for a second. There's an engine separate to the engine she's been using. The engine she's been using is called the Astral Layride. It's what she's built to now allow them to travel planes of existence. There's a separate machine that no one really knows much about called the Arboreal Calyx. And like the instruction manual, so to speak, basically says to leave it alone, just keep it operational, don't mess with it. Uh, Brennan basically does a massive lore dump explaining that the Arboreal Calyx was put into place 120 years ago directly after the last Apogee Solstice where a certain raven-haired woman ascended to divinity. So there's some interesting connection there and that the tree was put into place as in part because of something called the Drashari Tithe. The, the explanation here was that when Avalir 240 years ago, so two Apogee Solstices ago, when Avalir was cast to the sky, what caused them to be able to do that were the, the mages of Avalir essentially found this mountain called Mount Yagora, where um, two of the prime deities had defeated the primordials, or like two really important primordials or betrayer gods, I can't remember the details. And this mountain is full of broomstone. It's like, it's teeming with broomstone. And so they're like, let's take this mountain. It's got incredible power and let's use it. Well, the druids of that area who were protecting the area, they lived in this village called Toramunda. They basically were like, no, you can't take our mountain. And they're like, hey, well, how about we take the mountain? And then every 120 years as a thank you or what we owe to you, we will give you all of the ether and energy that we store up and it will be the replenishment. Yeah. Every um, seven years though. It's every, every time years, the sorry, cities come back together. 
Correct, right. So Cathmora is that original Druidic city. Avalir is the city that gets cast to the sky uh, because of the broomstone. And this becomes known as the Jashari Tithe and also known as the Pact of Crown and Throne. Crown being Avalir, Throne being Cathmora. Um, and so it's always been portrayed as this very like generous um, altruistic event, but actually it's basically a, hey, you owe this to us. Um, and right. so that's why the replenishment happens. So a lot of information there, yeah. uh, a lot of details. Um, but basically, we know that this arboreal calyx is here. And Laren is basically like, I need to figure out why it's sucking up so much energy because I need that energy to take Avalir into the next plane of existence. Um, also, what ends up happening is Xerxes shows up. He stopped in at the Golden Scythe, talked to Alessander, who basically was like, all right, Nidus is over at the Meridian Labyrinth with Laren. And uh, Nidus is separately on the side like, how come no one can keep a secret in the city? Um, Xerxes flies off on his griffin, not before Alessander says there's something you need to know, but he's out. He's gone. He doesn't get to hear it. Ugh. And... Um, and arriving at the Meridian Labyrinth, Xerxes doesn't see, doesn't notice Laren clutching the pendant of Evandrin, uh, but basically tells Laren, um, I'm here for you, whatever you need. And Brennan, um, <laughs> the slimy DM he is, basically says, hey, you remember a previous first night saying the same things, Evandrin, having told you those same things. Um, so there's definitely this implication that Laren is hiding something about Evandrin and their relationship. Um, the Ring of Brass gets back together. Um, Laren shares the news. There's this really interesting back and forth, sort of this challenging conversation of like, why would we want to go to another plane of existence? And Laren and Nidus basically say, why not? Like the only thing that makes the gods what they are is that they get to live in these other planes. If we go there, then they're like us. Like we right. basically ascend to godhood. Um, and there's more I want to say about that in our post recap, uh, Will, just in terms of some implications that were really cool with that conversation. Oh, yeah, we got a lot to talk about. Um, they talk again, and also from this conversation, they talk about how this has to happen now because it's the apogee solstice. Patia remembers, yeah, there's something really special about the apogee solstice. In fact, when I was a little girl, that same woman with the raven hair, I remember her sharing about how special the apogee solstice was, but you know what? No one can really remember her name, especially since she ascended to divinity. So um, they know this is their only chance. Laren's like, I have to figure this out now. But before they go on from there, they decide, let's look at the cultist body. So they go in, they do a medicine check, or actually a religion check. Xerxes rolls a natural 20 um, on the cultist's body. And they basically are told by Britain that this was someone who only two weeks ago became a cleric of a betrayer god. His body's riddled with tumors and growths. And the party feels a bit of a pity um, for this person who's been through something extremely horrific and miserable, becoming the servant of this betrayer god. And they say, wow, two weeks ago, that's when Vespin Chorus completed his ritual. Could, could Vespin be a betrayer god? We don't know. And um, Laren's kind of, uh, not Laren, uh, Patia's like, well, how did this person get in here? So she pulls out her scrying orb, which is like a security camera. And looks at the hallway outside the room and sees this Habmadad walking down the hallway and disappearing into this room. And it's applied that it's the cultist who has been using disguised self. They go back even farther and they see that this Habmadad arrived with the Dean of the Throne of Necromancy, uh, Dean Lucretia Hollow, uh, who is also the same person who originally invited Pervon Sol, uh, the champion of the uh, 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 Raven Queen, basically. 
and who also challenged and insulted him uh, to basically say, you're hiding something from us. But they see her arriving with this Havmadad. And so there's some closer link there. Um, okay, that's the first half. And then we go to break. I hope I covered all that stuff okay. Will, why don't you take the second half, which has yeah. just as many, <laughs> yeah, maybe even more lore <laughs> stuff to, to it. Alrighty, so we pick back up, and like Blake said, Dean Lucretia Hollow came in with this Hobmadab that was, in fact, the disguised cultist. And the Hobmadab cultist was carrying a gift. Like, people brought gifts to this event, and they noticed that it placed the gift on the table with all the other gifts. So their first order of business is, let's go see what the hell that cultist brought in disguised as a gift. So they make their way over there, and... I believe probably Pesha, but somebody cast a tech magic and there's no magical essence coming from it, but they find the gift. She opens it up and inside is a small vial and a note. And the note says, when the time comes, this will be the easier way out. All things end lives, stories, even ages. And the implication is that this vial is full of poison. So it's like, Hey, just kill yourself. Basically. That'll be like a cyanide pill. Basically like, yeah. Yeah. Like, that'll be the easier way out. Um, you know, Patia shares this with everybody else. Laren takes the vial, immediately smashes it on the floor. And they're like, okay, what the hell is going on here? Um, so Patia immediately tries to scry on Lucretia Hollow to figure out where she is. But she is unable to. And they quickly remember that all of these, like, powerful, influential mages and wizards um, wear this thing called a mind-shielding ring, which basically prevents them from being scried on. So they're like, okay, um... Where did we last see her? And they realized they last saw her talking to Madara Glyph, um, who is still at the party. So they rush over and approach Madara. And quickly they find out that Madara has had um, their memory modified uh, for some reason. So uh, Pesha casts Detect Thoughts and kind of dives into Madara's mind to try to figure out what happened here. And basically what they piece together is that Lucretia cast invisibility on herself and then struck out to go follow Pervon Sewell as he was leaving. And another man, um, let me make sure I'm right on this uh, name here, uh, Magister Cormorant, uh, yeah. he cast this modified memory spell on um, Madara. Glyph. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then kind of hastily made his leave. Uh, and they, what they saw is that Lucretia Hollow, following Pervon Sewell, was going out to potentially kill him. Like they were, right. she was preparing to cast some sort of like bad spell on Pervon, but was stopped when uh, Xerxes and Loquacious approached Pervon at the during last week's episode when they were just confronting him and asking him information. So because Pervon was no longer alone, Lucretia did not, you know, attempt whatever she was going to attempt and was was foiled in that moment. So they're like, okay, what's going on here? Um, and in this moment, the party basically kind of splits up to to do different things. Um, so Laren and Pesha decide to go find this uh, Magister Cormorant, maybe get some answers from him. Uh, meanwhile, Loquacious and Serret decide to head back to the Herald's Tome, which is where Loquacious works, in order to kind of just consult the records that they have on Vespin, see what they can find out. And finally, Xerxes and Nidus are going to go check out the Hall of Prophecy, the Hall of the Oracles, and figure out, like, why are they closed? Like, this is very weird. So first and foremost, we got Serret and Loquacious heading to the Herald's Tome. They do their investigation, and they essentially land on this... Um, these files from a reporter named Elena Tuvaris. 
And there's one interview in particular with Vespin about the matron's ritual. And Vespin is quoted as saying, why would you want to remove a benevolent force from the world? It'd be much better to dethrone something nefarious. And then there's another piece of information they find, which is this like video recording of an old interview. Um, and in the background of this interview, uh, Vespin, Cloris, Lucretia Hollow, and Loris of the Weaver's Mask um, are all talking. And Sarah is able to read Vespin's lips due to the angle that there is. And he basically picks up um, some information about the Tree of Names. And so then both Sarah and Loquacious are like, what is a tree of names? That like kind of sounds familiar. And with a super, whole ro- a super high roll from Travis, in addition to Loquacious giving him inspiration, mm-hmm. um, he's able to recall that the tree of names is this central like artifact of Avalier, something that needs to be eternally guarded. Um, it's not pr- talked about much, but it was protected 120 years ago by the Arboreal Calyx, which was built around it. Right. And... Uh, forgot to mention that basically all of the circle of brass that they've split up, but they have a telepathic bond that Pesha has right. like enabled. So they're all still able to communicate with each other. And so Sarah fills in everybody else about this tree of names and what he remembers about it. And Evandrin brings up, yeah, there was some tree in my dream, you know, that I told right. you guys are about uh, with Evandrin. And <clears throat> then Sarah, it's like Evandrin. And he notices there is in this reporter's files, there is like a file on Evandrin, but it's empty. So Sarah asks Loquacious, like, who has access to this? Like, why would this be gone? And Loquacious is like, she doesn't work here anymore. You know, I don't really know what she's doing. I'm not sure why it's gone. Uh, we have, you know, other reporters did stuff on Evandrin. You can check their files. I'm sure they're there. And he rolls, Brennan has him rolls like a deception check. And not like that exact specific moment, but just like in this conversation. And he rolls super high. So Sarah doesn't register. Yeah, 30, 31, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so... Then we cut to the Magisterium, which is where Laren and Pesha are going to confront this Magister Cormorant. Um, so they walk in, they make his way to, uh, they make their way to his office, and it's locked. So Laren casts Summon Construct and basically animates one of these like enormous statues nearby, and the statue just busts in through the office door. Um, it's empty, the lights are off, but Pesha turns them on, and she, I think, casts Detect Magic and realizes that there is something being like hidden in this room. And um, basically, initiative is rolled, and we have a really quick combat. Um, Laren essentially casts Fireball. Still can't see, but just, you know, with a general idea and with the AoE of Fireball, just casts it. Does hit, does a ton of damage, and it breaks uh, Magister Cormorant's uh, concentration on his invisibility spell so he, he's now visible and so now the arcane sentry that she can that she animated runs over and like punches him twice and he just dies and combat's over <laughs> um and they're like oh okay uh and so they quickly like investigate the room see what they can find and they do find that he was very interested in Laren's work the architect arcane and they also find a letter about the arboreal calyx and uh, the letter basically says, like, hey, we can't tell you what its purpose is. We don't trust the Wizards of Avalir to no limitation. They always, you know, seek higher and higher. If the Wizards knew the true nature of this tree, they would only see opportunity. Simply tend to the tree and do not ask about it again. And the letter is signed by the head druid of the Gaudashari. Um So next, we cut which is over... The, which is the druidic city that was protecting Mount Yagora. Right, for those right. Who are so basically... Yeah. The Cathmore part of the two, right. I, at least I assume. Um, yeah, right. 
So next we cut to the Hall of Oracles, <laughs> where Xerxes and Nidus are. They make their way in. Sorry, I was thinking of Zergus being like, how dead is he? He's like, uh. <laughs> yeah, he's like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to do anything. Wall, so. All right. Anyway, sorry. Continue. Uh, this is where so, it gets real good. <laughs> so they I'm go to the Hall of Oracles and there they see Sophira, who is a young woman and apparently knows Xerxes really well. And a bunch of the Archcept guards. So like the guards of like the main seven mages that are in charge of everything. And they're like, hey, why is this place closed? And with some insight checks, they basically see that she's like very troubled and has been crying and basically tells them that the Archcept guards here have been tasked by Loris of the Weaver's Mask to not allow anyone in. And with a super high deception role, Nidus is like, oh yeah, Loris said we could come in. <laughs> we're here on, <laughs> we're here on replenishment business for him. And she's like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She buys come it. On in. They're like, yeah, okay, well, perfect. So, um, and like I said, Xerxes and Sophira have some sort of previous relationship. So he's like, hey, you know, I can tell you're upset. Like, you can tell me anything. Like, you know, I'm here to help. And she's like, you know, okay, come with me. And she's like, I'm glad Laura sent you. Like, he only took over yesterday after Volusia broke her staff and denounced magic forever. And uh, they're like, whoa. And who Volusia is, um, she's also a member of the Ring of Gold. And basically like Loris's counterpart. They are both the apprentices of Aladrin, who is one of the seven. Um, right. So she tells them that, hey, about two weeks ago, Oracle started going crazy, speaking false prophecies. It all started with this one named Carwin. And then as other people started to try to like help her, they too went mad. And now it's basically down to just me. And they're like, whoa. And is this what caused Volusia to renounce everything? And she says, I don't really know. I just heard her her and Loris arguing. And she said, if these gifts harm us, then I, we should not accept them. And then, you know, she basically broke her staff and said, I'm out. Um, so they're approaching this uh, bedroom where Carwin, the original one who went mad, is being held. And Sophia's like, hey, it's really better if just one person goes in there at a time. Um, like, just trust me basically and so xerxes is like okay yeah i'll go in there <clears throat> and as they're making way th as they're making their way there nidus is like can you show me these prophecies these false prophecies that she was talking about and um so was like okay yeah so that's what they go and do while xerxes comes into this room and he notices as he approaches through like this bathhouse with a bunch of mirrors there's like cracks all in them so he goes in and he sees Carwin, this woman laying on a bed with these like white runic uh, symbols and a circle around the bed. And on, I don't know if it's like the wall behind her as in like the headboard or the opposite wall. I think it's the opposite wall, okay. like a, like a decoration kind of thing though, like to okay. set the room ambience. <laughs> yeah. So on the opposite wall, then there's almost like this waterfall kind of a cascade of water kind of pouring down. And in the reflection, he can, you know, the water is reflecting the room. So in the reflection, there's also a bed and someone in it, although it is not Carwin. It is instead this red horned figure, the same one Xerxes recognizes from his dream in episode one, except they are now like humanoid size. Um, and Xerxes does cast like divine presence or something. And he notices that Carwin has a slight celestial um, ping but it is completely overshadowed, overshadowed by this massive fiendish ping coming from that reflection. So Xerxes kind of like walks into it and finds himself now in another time, another realm, as Brennan describes it, and is now face to face with this red horned figure that is like bleeding and appears to be dying in this bed. And 
Xerxes is like, you know, show yourself. And the, the creature responds like, I can't, I'm too weak. And Xerxes is like, you know me. And the creature replies, I do know you. I know you well. You saved me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of approaches and you can tell Xerxes is like, you know, he's like a good guy. He like wants to help this grievously injured thing. And uh, it tells him like, hey, it's okay. I can't die. I'm not in danger. It just hurts. You saved me before the Dawnfather could destroy me. And Xerxes asks, who are you? And they respond, betrayer, sinner, most unclean. I am the Lord of the Hells. And then <clears throat> there's basically this massive kind of lore dump in this scene where the Lord of Hells explains that when the gods first arrived here, they were all like with the primordials in this energy of the world. They all came and wanted to offer their own gifts and mold this magic. And they just one by one were offering gifts to the world and uh, the Lord of Hells, Asmodeus, as we come to find out, said he was one of the ones kind of late to arrive to the table. And all of the the good gifts had already been offered, already been made. So there wasn't much left. And he kind of had to take the scraps, had to take what he was given. Um, and as they're talking, Xerxes is, realizes that this man looks like Evandrin. And the Lord of Hells explains that, yeah, um, you know, I was the most beautiful of them all. And... I appear to mortals as who they find most beautiful. Um, And he basically starts breaking down being like, uh, no one has shown me kindness like in so long. And he kind of just like starts sobbing and explaining more about how, you know, the gifts all were offered by the prime deities. So when he showed up and these other betrayer gods showed up, there wasn't much left. So they had to make the gifts he offered were like lies and betrayal in order to, be the other side of the coin you know accentuate accentuate like the value of honesty and truth like to make these good things even better he created these other things like lying and deception to emphasize the goodness of those things exactly and um you know he thought that it would make the earlier work matter more but as time passed um mortals called his gifts evil and wicked and cursed him and none said prayers in his name so Asmodeus and these other betrayer gods were basically already hated. And then the prime deities kept giving more and more gifts to their creations, which basically just widened the gap even more. And again, the primordials were on this world before any of these deities came. And with each gift that the gods would give the mortals, they are kind of stepping on the primordials toes more and more. And it eventually rose to a boiling point where the primordials rose against the prime deities and the betrayer gods sided with the primordials because that was who they originally like made a deal with. Um, and he has this big moment of saying like, and we were called the betrayers. Like they were just honoring their original agreement with the primordials. Um, so after all that's, that lore is kind of dropped. Xerxes is basically begs Asmodeus to be like, do not forget me. If you like fully break free from here, do not turn your pain on your children. Like let us help you. And we will, you know, make those who did this to you pay. And Asmodeus is like, not for all the ages of the world. Will I ever forget you? Um, You know, I am the Lord of, I'm the father of lies. Like, you know, the Lord of hell. I, I know when someone is lying and I can see people's faults. And your fault is that you are too trusting and you are being lied to and not by any God. Um, so Xerxes 
is like, ah, okay. And he kind of looks back through the portal from whence he came and he sees his like crumpled body on the floor and realizes that he's kind of having like an Oracle-esque vision in this moment. And he's like, all right, I, you know, I got to take my leave soon. But he, before he leaves, he asks, why was Evandrin's spirit in that dream with the tree? And as Modius says, you know, it's because of your connection to him, his spirit must have somehow been near. And they have a quick conversation about Evandrin. And he's like, did you ever try to bring him back? And Xerxes says, I tried to stop what happened to him, but I couldn't. He was afflicted by this illness beyond my reach. You know, I tried everything. And as Modius says, you know, there are lots of ways for diseases, illnesses and stuff to be stopped. Um, and it's kind of, you know, kind of implying that like, it's kind of strange that he wasn't able to be saved. And again, you know, reference that he's being lied to. Um, then he says, you know, be careful. There are many lies in the city you call home. And Asmodeus casts protection from good and evil on Xerxes and says, this will protect you from Fae, Fiend, and Celestial, including myself. Um, there's poison in your city and you know the shape of it. Xerxes basically nods, steps back through the portal, but gives a final last word of come find me. Um, so then we cut back to Nidus and Sophira, and Sophira is showing Nidus this prophecy, and the prophecy was, the stars are leaving us, our hands cannot reach the limbs of the tree, can no longer scribe the name of deliverance. We will soon be as broken as our promise. Avalir shall fall, all shall fall, and from our folly will the hands that forge the world banish themselves from the broken things that they have made. And Nidus is like, oh yeah, okay, let's go ahead and continue assuming that that's false. And, uh, yeah, something must've gone wrong. Cause this couldn't possibly happen. Right. Um, and in that moment, Laren gets a ping on her wrist cell phone device. And it's a Kami Rowe who is stating that everything's going swimming, swimmingly with the conjunction of the two cities. They are now above Kath Moira and their descent has begun. Um, Akami says, I'm going to stay here in the engine room. Just make sure nothing's go wrong. Nothing goes wrong. Um, and like mid sentence, she gets like cut off by this gurgling noise and then the transmission ends and so the various groups are all like again they have this telepathic bond are like oh shit let's go so everyone convenes toward the engine room uh they convene in the dawn siege or dawn's ledge um which is near there um and they run into lucretia hollow and she's like ah the ring of brass and that's where the episode ends oh there's a lot sorry i tried to tried to go through it Bro. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you want to know our reactions, check the link below. Check out the whole video. We want to know your reactions to what the freaking crap just happened in this episode. Let us know your thoughts. Um, all right. Uh, let's do the... We did a little pre-touch. Let's do the post-touch. We'll... Um, you and I, we're lore junkies. We love the lore drops. Um, I freaking loved this episode i thought it was so amazing uh loved the first episode as well i don't know if i would rank either one higher than the other uh this may be the best best dnd like episode type stuff that i've ever seen i mean it's been really good um i thought it was an awesome episode i guess it's not really good dnd in the sense of like they're not like it's storytelling right they're not like necessarily like doing a lot of like the mechanics of dnd i guess mm -hmm. i mean they are but it's not like your you know you know living room table game i guess but in terms of like content i've yeah. it's been amazing yeah it's almost like 
like a like a like a play which uh, you could argue that a lot of D is like a play but this especially i think because it's we already know the end in a way like we know where this story ends we don't know the details of it but this is like a almost like a retelling of some events where like i think all the players kind of had maybe a hand in crafting this story a little bit um you know to some extent i don't think they like know what's going to happen or anything uh, but as opposed to a normal D game where you know you're, you're making the stakes you're making the story here we're in a in a box if you will and it's just done with such high level of skill and mastery that it's just so good so i, I get what you're saying that it's it's D, but it's also kind of more of a traditional story more so than like a normal D would be how would you like rank it in terms of because you've seen three campaigns now or two and a half campaigns like where would you put this mini series i guess and maybe it's not fair to to compare since you're talking like 100 plus episodes versus two episodes but yeah um, I don't know, what do you think it, you know you don't want to pick a favorite between your kids you know what i'm saying but <laughs> i think and I could wax poetic on this for like another 20 minutes. I'll spare everybody. But I do think it's kind of a distinctly different almost type of story. Like, I don't think it's really fair to compare this to campaign three. But that being said, this is some of the highest level best D&D I've ever seen. Like, I think I mentioned this in our in our pre part. Um, but just two of the best DMs in the world collaborating. Like, of course, it's going to be good, you know? so yeah i yeah i love the comment that they had been like spending the morning together like i mean there must be just so many cool like riffing off each other like oh and then we can do this and then do that yeah so but yeah incredible i think i if at episode one i said it was probably in my top 10 um episodes um and this one probably is too it's uh it's just been really good you know yeah, I will say this one, my wife watched most of the first one. She didn't watch really much of this one. Um, I think the lore, I mean, like I said, I love the lore drop. I think maybe for someone who's not like running their own YouTube channel on <laughs> Critical Role, I, I don't know, actually. I'm just kind of assuming like for me, I'm just like, yes, more lore, give it to me. And I'm, I'm waiting for like, you know, the extra content, like book release and all this stuff, we've, which we've talked about. But um but yeah, um, you know, I, I, I'm curious, like the average watcher, like I have some friends who I've recommended critical role to, who I haven't talked to yet, who are like part of my campaign. Mm -hmm. I'd be really curious after they watch a couple episodes, like what their reaction will be. If they'll be like, yeah, it's a little, I got kind of lost in the weeds or if they'd be like, yes, that was amazing. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm curious too. And I doubt it, but if anyone is watching this video and like, you don't like, exu calamity is your first experience with critical role please let us know what you think as well um because yeah I, I, i'm i'm interested in that demographic as as well because the, there has been tons of lore which we're eating up but it also feels accessible like i'm sure there's lots of names that somebody new to this is like who are they talking about what's going on but i still feel like brennan's does a pretty good job of like layering it layering it well layering it in to not be like just a massive confusion. Right. Um, but yeah, so would love to hear some perspective from people like that. If you're, if you're watching. Well, where should we, where should we start today? Oh my gosh. Dude, there's so <laughs> many different things. Uh, I've tried to put some extra time aside today. Cause I just knew there's so many great things to talk about. Um, I know you said you watched chunks of it a couple of times. Like I said, I watched the episode yeah. twice. Uh, and then since then I've watched 
like I have some other um, scenes up. I sent you a scene from earlier with Asmodeus. Yeah. Um, you know, so dealer's choice, man. You know, where do you where, right. <laughs> where I, to begin today? I think we should just or dive into one of the most interesting parts. Uh, the Asmodeus scene. Yeah. Do you believe him? Oh my gosh, man. I, here's what I will say is as, as Modius is in my campaign, um, they haven't interacted with him yet. It totally changed. This interaction totally changed how I want to approach Asmodeus because Ooh. I was originally considering like your kind of more canonical evil, um, you know, oh, this is a Lord of the Hells, real bad dude. Yeah. And then I, I thought what Brennan did a great job and we can, I'll just say from now on, whenever I say Brennan, we can also maybe imply also Matt because we know Matt's probably involved, but I also don't want to, I don't want to detract from the genius that is Brennan. Yeah. Um, Cause this is my first foray into watching Brennan Lee Mulligan. Me too. Uh, he is freaking amazing. He's mm. so good. And so I don't want to detract from that at all, but again, we'll just, um, uh, just know, I know I'm sure Matt was involved in some of this too, but the way he characterized him, there was some really awesome, um, callbacks to like the christian lucifer mm -hmm. who yeah we know lucifer was like the most beautiful of the of all the angels you know um let me sorry i have some notes here that i've written down yeah, yeah. um this is actually one of the first times i've written a bunch of notes also because i didn't want to miss any details <laughs> so we know um one of the most beautiful of all the angels um we have very similar um uh comments made with him being like you know i was known as the most beautiful um, and there's also things he says that seem very genuine. Like, you know, um, I always said that, uh, what was it? The face on Dominus, like it was the smile and like, yeah. he's like kind of like proud of his work, I guess. Mm -hmm. He's like, we're not supposed to take credit for anything in particular, but, um, all that to say his conversation feels very genuine. Um, and so I think, I think there's one of two things that are happening here and it doesn't answer your question at all. I think it'd be a really interesting counter to the typical story of good and evil like here are the bad people who did these bad things and instead it being no actually they were it, they were doing just as important work it's just that it's how their work was perceived you know creating yeah. lies like you think about like the father of lies and you, when you think of like the typical christian father of lies you think of like deceitful conniving whatever and it's like no like in a totally morally indifferent term i am the father of lies i created lies um and so so yeah it could be oh, sorry I'm, I'm just kind of rambling as i know that's, what, question, that's what we're here for man that's what we're here for i think there, i think there could be a really cool potential like these were guiltless deities who were sort of cast into unfair suffering because he even mentions i've been burning for so long but I want to go back to what I said on our last episode that I felt like the dream was intentionally manipulating Xerxes. I think that Asmodeus is being genuine in some of the things he's saying, but I think he's telling half truths, like mm -hmm. telling just enough to still be honest, but not the whole story to basically manipulate and trick Xerxes. Um, and it could even be maybe maybe Vespin Chloris took over, um, <laughs> took over his seat, so to speak. I don't know, man. 
what do you think? What do you, I've kind of just rambled. What do you think? Oh uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, all I'm going to do is ramble. Uh, I, I agree with you. I think he was being not to put words in your mouth, but I think he was being honest, but manipulative. So I think the things he was saying were true and maybe half truth is a better word. Like I think things he said were true, but maybe he was leaving out things, if that makes sense. Um, Cause I, I mean, that's a really compelling and interesting story. The way he laid it out there that, you know, that wasn't like these deities, the betrayer gods weren't at least initially like malicious. They were just offering the only things that were left to offer. Um, but I definitely think that there's, he, he has his own agenda, right? I don't think he was just, Oh, this is my terrible sob story. Like, please help me Xerxes. Uh, he wants something from him. And I think, I mean, there's so many questions as to what that could be or what's coming next. And you post something very interesting as well, that is it possible that this is Vespin having already usurped the true Asmodeus? And he's like caught between this mid area before he can like fully, you know, manifest. Um, but kind of regardless of if, if that's the case or not, maybe this really is the true Asmodeus and it's not Vespin. I definitely think that this, to put it simply, told the truth but was being manipulative, and we've yet to see to what end. Um, but I don't well, think he was lying, which I think is something. Like, well, here's the question: Why doesn't Asmodeus mention Vespin at all? Yeah, because I mean, you know, what I'm saying like, why wouldn't he just be like, oh yeah, this dude Vespin Chloris has like come down to my house and. Um, he says, I mean, he does say like, there is a comment where he says like the door was blown off its hinges, basically, you mm -hmm. know, it says like it was more explosive than that or something. So I guess he does reference it. Um, but he, it's interesting that he doesn't give any more insight, like, Hey, this dude showed up and he's like trying to take over my house or, um, that's that lack of conversation makes me a bit more suspicious to Asmodeus, uh, and his intentions. And it, and like you said, it could be a half truth. It could be his story is completely accurate and he was unjustly imprisoned i think the implication of him being honest and just and like just trying to get back to dominus um that part may be something that we're just inferring you know maybe he's like i've been unjustly imprisoned and now i'm gonna make everyone pay like right. and, and xerxes is even like you could still be evil but not have been originally evil i guess so to speak um but right, dude, like how about Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, even if everything he said was true and he's been imprisoned and basically tortured for thousands of years, I don't know. Like, yeah, I'd right. be pissed too. You know, like, he kind of is justified to an extent in, you know, wanting revenge. Um, well, how about how about Xerxes being like, don't forget me? Like, bro, I got, <laughs> I got some vibes. He was like, don't, which Luis was amazing, by the way, in this whole scene. Yeah. But, he was like, don't forget me. Like, please, like, I will help you. Almost like pledging. Like, remember, Xerxes doesn't have a deity. He doesn't have a god. Right. And he's basically pledging his allegiance to Asmodeus. And Asmodeus basically says, for for all time, I will never forget you, Xerxes. Which I got some, and I think the whole cast did, got some vibes there of like, Ooh, are we the baddies? Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That was, that... And also, I don't know if you feel this way too, but I'm also curious, and actually, I don't want to like sidetrack us too much, but like, it made me wonder, like in CR3, are we going to see 
a demonic Xerxes who, you know, after 10,000 years of serving Asmodeus, like this is an evil, I don't know. I mean, that's like kind of where my head goes is like, what's the connection, which there may not be any connection, but, um, but yeah. Yeah, no, I, I thought the same thing with those lines. And um, and so we were talking about, you know, Asmodeus, if he's lying or not, or what his things is. I think an interesting other side of that coin is Xerxes's intentions. Like, I think there might be more to him than just, oh, I need to help this person in need. Like, he may have his own, like, because we know he, like, basically disdains the gods and... uh. I don't want to, I want to get into a whole thing about Evandrin, but I don't want to go there yet. Uh, so I just well, think there might be more to what. Didn't he tweet something like there's more happening here than. Oh yeah, he did. Because uh, weren't people like talking like, oh, and, and just totally broad brushing this just for the sake of the conversation. People being like, how could Xerxes be so naive? And like, kind of even like picking up on Asmodeus's comment of like, you're too trusting. And I think he tweeted back like, well, there's actually more happening here than mm-hmm. maybe you realize. Um because maybe he's sort of playing Asmodeus a bit too. Um, That's what I'm wondering. Because because think about this. You know, we we sort of naturally assume, like you see Asmodeus laying on this cot, like writhing in pain, and us as the viewer, speaking for myself, but as the viewer, there's an immediate distrust. It's like, okay, what are you doing here? Like, are you really hurt, or are you gonna? Is this one of those like, you know? uh call it call an ambulance but not for me (laughs) you know like so you have this immediate distrust i think the cleverness of xerxes is the exact same unassumingness and yet we don't have the same like um apprehension or suspicion and so Mm -hmm. i think i think there's some merit to that tweet of there maybe Xerxes is a bit more conniving is maybe too harsh a word, but at least a bit more clever than we've given him credit for. Yeah, I agree. I don't think he's as naive as, as you maybe would just get from the first glimpse of that picture. Um, Cause again, I don't want to get into the Avenger thing yet, but this is a man who is like, he's claimed this city is not my home. Like I know that this place is filled with vipers, like, and he lost the love of his life. Like this is somebody who has like a, for lack of a better word, a chip on their shoulder. Like this isn't just a naive, like sees the best in everyone. I think he is cynical. So I think that there's definitely some depth to maybe that interaction on both sides. Um, right. Right. Um, and what, one thing I re- recycling, rewinding a little bit um, when you said like, it's kind of weird that Vespin was not mentioned at all. Obviously could be for manipulative purposes, you know, the, the whole host of reasons, but Maybe it is, if he is telling the truth, maybe, you know, he was locked behind this prison gate or whatever, the door blasted open, like you mentioned, and now he just finds himself here. Like, maybe he has not had any direct contact with Vespin, you know, maybe Vespin didn't even try to usurp him, maybe it's somebody else, and so maybe Asmodeus is just one of these betrayer deity. I mean, obviously, I think he has a more important role than just random betrayer deities. There was a comment, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that it is at least possible that the the absence of Vespin mentioned wasn't like a lie or manipulation. Right. Maybe he just really hasn't yeah. interacted with him at this point. Well, there's also this interesting um, think about that. Like, let's just talk about like the rules of ascension, I guess, for okay. a second. We know that the uh, matron of Ravens, when she ascended, she 
killed the god of death, whatever. And name was wiped from existence. She took over. No one remembers her name anymore. It's kind of a really interesting, like, mental thing that only 100, like, again, 120 years seems like a lot in our time. But again, in their time, Rapatia was a little girl. And yet no one remembers this person's name. Right. Well, we still know Vespin Chorus's name. Right. His name hasn't been wiped, which maybe the rules are different for a betrayer god. But to me, that implies that he's not yet usurped a betrayer mm-hmm. god. Or again, maybe his motive never was. Maybe it was to blow the doors off the cage, I guess. Um, but there's also a comment earlier. I don't remember if it was the end of episode one or in episode two, uh, where Loquacious, maybe him and Xerxes are talking about their conversation with Pervon Sol. And Brennan basically, I don't know if there's an inside check or what happens, but I'm um, sorry, I had a fly. Uh, basically, the comment to Loquacious is um, you get the implication that what is being done is not yet done. Right. Like it's in process. Mm. Um, and that's just my generic comment on I don't think Vespin has become or stepped into that seat yet, if it even is his desire. Um, that's just kind of a random comment, no, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. I think a similar comment was made this episode, I think. I think it was when I don't remember exactly, and it's not important, but like he I think Asmodeus was like, This is an Exandria, and he's like, Yeah, you're somewhere in between. So like what's happening is not finished yet. So Right. Now and of course this is the whole juiciness of the whole story, but it's like and uh I don't know. I don't want to like change subjects yet because I don't know. We might have more to say on this, but you know, who amongst them, if not all of them combined, is the triggering thing that is going to set this off and be that final, you know, domino? Like, is it Xerxes trusting him? Is it, you know, right? Here's what's interesting. We talked about this in our last episode, which I think I made the comment that you know, Vespin Chloris, whenever the CR three team finds this diary it's like oh the diary of vespin chloris the you know um known for causing the calamity basically and i made a comment you know because we we got some real crazy mad scientist vibes from laren in the first episode yeah and i think the comment i made was like wouldn't it be interesting if vespin was the fall guy but really the cause of the calamity was laren or one of the heroes at the table i think you make a great point i think I think we're getting more and more evidence in this episode that these people have some kind of ambiguous moral ties. Oh yeah. And and it each one of them, I mean even Pesha has a connection to Pesha is a bit unassuming in the sense of like you're like, "Oh cool, daughter of the grand master whatever." Um and then you find out that she knew about the experiment all along. She's right. like, of course, yeah, of course I did. And so there's definitely this vibe of, okay, which one of them sort of pushes over the domino mm-hmm. that causes the spiraling out. And maybe you're right. Maybe it's all of them in some way play a role. Um, I'm kind of pissed at how mismanaged this city is. How come no one, <laughs> like, what, like, why, why is there no one to report to or be like, hey, this seems like a big deal? It's like, but, 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 well, I guess what would be a plot hole, and this is also kind of changing the subject. I want to come back to this comment in particular. Um, it seems like a plot hole. Like, why wouldn't they like phone a friend? Like, hey, boss, like, I think something super bad's happening. I think it actually speaks to the arrogance 
and the ego mm -hmm. of like we're untouchable it's avalier it's the age of arcanum it's and it's very unique well i won't get too much into it um but all that to say i totally agree i think there is some implication of one of them if not all of them in some convoluted mess are contributing to the final events that we know are coming yeah 100 percent, and uh I think the arrogance and hubris is like a big theme. And I feel like that's definitely playing into it, you know? And I mean, cause they're the, um, they're the self-proclaimed ring of brass, right? That's not like an actual thing to my understanding. Like I, I feel like I they're like know. a secret group and that's just what they call themselves. Well, Dean Lucretia hollow refers to them. She says, ah, the ring of brass. Oh, you're right. You're like right. As they arrive. Um, my point was that like, shouldn't you call the ring of silver or like the ring of gold or go see the seven? Like this seems True. like a big deal. But um, we know that at least the silver and gold are both implicated members of them. At least Lucretia hollow is part is of a, the ring of silver. Yeah. And Loris is a member of the ring of gold. Yeah. Loris is the apprentice of Aladrin. Uh, is that right? Aladrin. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, that yeah. is right. I don't know if that's how you say it, but that's what I said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which so was Volusia. Yeah. So both the, like what's Loris up to, which in, in episode, and I don't want to get too far off track here, but in episode one, when Patia was talking to Eladrin and Loris, you know, they told her like, Oh yeah, Volusia is retiring. She's going to go move to some city. To yeah. yeah she's like, she wants to be a bigger fish in a smaller pond basically. But clearly now we know that's not true. Like she basically had a breakdown and renounced magic. So yeah, very, yeah. Brennan said that this, a mage doing this is so unheard of that Nidus is almost like nauseating at the yeah. site of the destroyed. Um, cause they see this pile of ash and it's like, this is the remains of her destroyed, um, arcane focus, like her staff, I guess. Um, which I actually wondered, like, did they kill her or <laughs> cause they had, you had, there were some major, like Velusa went to go live on a farm down the road, you know, type vibes. Um, I don't know. And we know Loris, kind of stroked Pesha's ego a bit and said, Hey, I think, I think we're tapping you to be the successor, like the next, like, wasn't, wasn't that what was said in episode I one? Like, I feel like that was like an implication, like, Hey, so there's a spot opening up type of thing. Right. Um, yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot. Of, okay. So maybe are we, I was gonna say, go are ahead. we good on the current? I mean, we might jump back to it, but the whole Asmodeus, yeah, and I was going to actually say maybe maybe we could stay in the Hall of Prophecy since it's tangential, um, and then we can kind of yeah. blow out from there. Is that yeah. okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I loved, I loved, I told Joy about this. I loved the, because I was wondering how are they going to handle um, this organization within the city that can basically see the future? Like, it, it again, it's, it's, this is what I appreciate. And maybe I'm like way in over my head, like such a Kool-Aid drinker of all things critical role, but these things that would be like messy plot holes, that would be a bit annoying. i just, I like the flavor of how they're addressed. And so you have a, a organization of future seers. Well, why couldn't they stop the calamity? Well, because when they started getting visions, like I just love the detail of it was so horrific that it drove them insane. <laughs> like that is such a cool detail. And I love also like when, when Nidus reads the prophecy, um, how, uh, I can Sapphira is like, that can't be true. Right. And he's like, no, of course not. But you're kind of like, you're all screwed. Like you're done. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just I just really appreciated that detail. It's like an insane asylum now. 
Yeah, and that, you know, also to speak to, like, the arrogance and hubris, they just, oh, that has to be false. Like, you, you're you going mad. You've lost your touch. We could never fail. That must be false. You know what I'm saying? So they're like, right. and clearly it is true. Like, um, that's going to happen. So I I like how all those pieces kind of slot together. Because, yeah, that is well, a good... Um, and there was also a comment on the prophecy was sent off, maybe to the Octothurge, which I don't remember what the Octothurge was. Um, but it's another one of those organizations. But yeah. wasn't it like it was sent off and it came back like, oh, that's false. And it kind of, to me, gave the implication that someone purposely, like we know Lucretia Hollow is part of the Octothurge. It gave me the implication to me that one of those people was like, oh yeah, this is, uh, this is false. Don't worry about this. When, yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know. Definitely possible. I mean, she clearly is in on something with Loris and I guess Vespin. I mean, they those three were all talking to each other in the back of that interview. So, and clearly they're all three making moves. So I guess it's safe to assume that they're all working together. I don't know if that's fair assumption or not, but um, yeah, they they've got people in high places with that being the case. So clear, like you know, maybe Loris or Lucretia themselves saw that and knowing what they had planned. I mean, I'm sure they don't assume that the world's going to end with what they do, though. But anyway, I don't want to get off track here. But yeah, I think it's definitely possible that in addition to just being like, oh, that could never happen. Maybe like, okay, nobody can even know that some shenanigans are going on. Uh, false. Get that, you know, file that away. Don't worry about that. Yeah, I mean, I've been, I, yeah, and I don't want to detract though from your comment on like hubris and ego. Um, can we maybe park there for a second? Because this Let's is park. like one thing I've been wanting to talk about. Um They've done such a great job. It's so interesting because, like, in history, like the golden age of Rome, there's like not like any texts out there that's like, or an average citizen being like, we're in the golden age of Rome. Right, like, right. It's just, it's interesting how aware Avalier and presumably elsewhere, um, Aor included, it's interesting how aware people are of we're living in the age of Arcanum. Like, this is it's bountiful it's amazing like yeah. nothing literally can stop us and there's i guess what i want to do is just kind of wax poetically for a second about how much i appreciate the world building of of characterizing that ego like we know that vespin we have the comment at the herald's tome of vespin basically criticizing the ritual of the uh, matron of ravens being basically like like, why would we assume that only one person, because I think it was said that she had shut the door behind her so no one else could do it. Yeah. And he was like, well, why in the, in the age of Arcanum, why would we assume that what's true for one could not be true for all? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just appreciate the level of ego. And here's what's really interesting. Here's what I thought was really clever was the way this ascension was characterized in the first episode was you're kind of a joke if you're doing it it's kind of like don't be the loser kid who tries it um you know as they're exploring as sarah's sort of exploring the the evidence you have the other guy who's kind of like oh another one of those crackpots yeah yeah but what is what is the ring of brass doing they are trying to do it laren basically right, yeah. in her in her comment says you know we can go to where they are and then they're just like us if you flip that, we are just like them. Essentially, putting words in our mouth, we can become gods. This is yeah. literally the ascension that she is replicating, and I I love Basically, the ex- yeah. 
I love the implication. It makes sense why she would do this because in they live in this time where everyone has been jealous of the Ascension and has tried to replicate it in some way. So why wouldn't Laren want to do it? Um, so I just love how, you know, there's sort of like this jealous criticism of like, oh, like people who try that, it's so dumb, whatever. And yet we really want to see it happen. And also they live... <laughs> They live in this world where literally, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. Literally anything is possible, literally anything except for one thing. And that is just this most obnoxious thing that scratches at them and annoys them. And it's like, we have to solve this. Like this is the one peak we can't climb up to. Yeah. Um, that's my long winded rant, man, of how much I've just, <laughs> I've so appreciated the role of ego. And, and it's also, like I said earlier, it solves the plot hole of why they didn't call someone or like, Surely this is above our pay grade. It's, it's, you know, what could go wrong? Everything's amazing. You know, yada, yada, yada. Um, all right. Yeah. End rant. No. Yeah. And yeah. to that same point who they probably think whoever they would call is probably less capable than themselves, you know? Um, but yeah, it's cool that like in this, this golden age, the age of Arcanum, the only peak left to, to climb is to become a god like that's what they all that's the only thing left to grasp and so i think you know a lot of these high level mages and stuff are obsessed with it obviously um but yeah well said i i i agree with with everything in uh in your speech there and uh yeah my ego speech <laughs> um my speech on humility no that's again that's what we're here for so i loved it i agree I and i'm trying to remember Where'd we park? I don't remember. That's where we parked. Okay. <laughs> well, we were in, we're talking about the Hall of Prophecy. Um, and right, just, you, right, you know, right. the, the ego around like, you know, yeah, these prophecies couldn't be true. Um, right. Uh, which, yeah, I mean, again, I just think it's it, actually something else I would say too. Um, so if I mentions that they're all still here, like they're all still here, all the crazy people are still here. It makes me wonder like when everything goes to hell, like, this is basically an insane asylum. I have like total vibes of like the insane asylum getting broken open and these crazy people like rampaging out and just adding to the chaos of what befalls the city. So interesting interjection here. How crazy are they? Cause they're right. I think they might just be labeled as being crazy for daring to speak that this may all come tumbling down and maybe they have like descend into lunacy. I'm not sure, but I've, I'm wondering that like what have they actually lost their minds or are they just labeled that because they're spouting things people don't want to hear? I assume there's like not an off button, you know, if your whole job on a day-to-day -day basis is a gift of seeing the future in, in whatever terms that looks like. Um, I'm assuming there's not an off button. And so you're getting flooded with the end of the world. Like I was trying to explain this to my wife, like the calamity is not just like a bad moment. It's like literally the end of the world. Yeah, like like, apocalypse. like it, it is the apocalypse. And imagine if you woke up one day and you had a dream of the end of the world and those dreams kept happening. I, I, I assume that it maybe started as like, that was a bad dream like that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. And I mean, getting faced with the end of the world on a daily basis, I think would drive someone literally insane. Yeah. Um, there's fair. probably some people in there that are lumped in though, who are just like, you know, they want to grab a beer, you know, and just kind of <laughs> see it all burn down. But instead they're like locked on a rubber room, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I don't know. 
And sorry, my mind's just kind of rolling right now. If so, we know Loris is the one that got the place shut down. You know, reasons we can speculate to, but clearly for a reason. And we know that uh, I forget her name. Uh, the 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 one in the bed, um, Karen Car- Carwin Carwin. She had runic symbols around her bed. Yeah, is that because of Asmodeus like inhabiting? her maybe like does does loris no you know like is there were like white sigils i kind of got the implication of like the futuristic version of like a like you're crazy that's why this is here not because there's yeah like restraints um like the the vest restraint thing whatever um that's the vibe i got but i don't know Um, yeah because yeah there was this and also the fact that he did detection uh of good and evil or whatever it was and since celestial from her but then fiendish elsewhere um so i don't think he's like possessing her i don't think yeah i mean i i def i think that she's crazy let's make sure she stays there i think that's the most reasonable explanation and pro- probably the most probable probable as well but loris shut this place down for some reason he clearly knows what's going on here and if he is connected directly to Vespin and whatever this ritual they're trying to do is, maybe Asmodeus needed to be like imprisoned in a specific place for the next stage of this to happen or something. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm not really going anywhere with this, but it's just interesting to think about because why? Why is he there if it's not directly connected? Right. Like, why is he like yeah. in this the reflection realm of this woman? There is like a waiting room vibe of like, okay, what are we waiting on? Um, yeah. But yeah. And the other question with that too is what, what is the weaver's mask by the way? Do we know, which by the way, weaver, I think is a really clever title by the way, because weaver is implicit of, um, a spider, a spider who weaves its webs. Um, and so that, I went for from that like deceit or trickery or what have you. Um, got the same vibe. But um, w- do we know what the Weaver's Mask is? I don't. It is possible that that is a known entity out there, but I am not sure. Okay. Okay, okay I gotcha. Yeah, and I just Googled it and I didn't see... I didn't see... I don't see anything on it either, other than just like, Loris was part of the Weaver's Mask. I'm like, okay, yeah. that's not helpful. <laughs> and I wonder how... Oh. Is Loris, do you think, puppeting Eladrin? I don't know. I mean, there was the Aladrin could be part of it. I mean, I don't know. True. The one thing that stuck out to me after, you know, finding this out this episode was in episode one, when Pesha was talking to Aladrin and Loris at at the statue or whatever. uh, Like one of the final things is like, you know, I heard that your friend Sarah was investigating these artifacts brought over from Vasselheim. Somebody tried to reattempt the ritual or whatever. Uh, he says, now don't, whatever you find out about that, don't go to the usual channels, come to Loris to tell me directly. So it's interesting that like, he was trying to head that off. Like you put that in front of me first. So I don't know if Loris has kind of some strings on Eladrin or like you said, if he is complicit. That's what, but... pretty telling. I think that's interesting. But yeah, I thought so. Okay. Well, be interesting to find well, out more about him. Let's move from there to the Meridian Labyrinth with Laren, Nidus, and maybe a tertiary topic, Xerxes. Um, 
Let's let's be park on Zerg just for a second. What do you think Alessander was trying to tell him? I have no idea because that was Nidus's homie, right? Like Nidus's yeah. employee. Yeah, because yeah. Uh, my only guess is that maybe something to do with the taxmen, like something to do with those automatons he took out. I don't know what though. I but other than that, I have no idea at all. Do you have any ideas? No, and I'm a bit thrown as to why Xerxes would be like, nope, I'm gone, sorry. Like, why he wouldn't be like, oh, sorry, what, what did you want to tell me? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess, I don't know if that was like a in service of the story, like this is such an urgent thing and the calamity's happening. Like, this is one example of like us not paying attention to everything and, you know, maybe ignoring something he should have listened to. Or if it was just, shut up, I'm <laughs> working on something else here. But yeah. I don't want to segue us too far, but that's like yeah. a great... That's like a that great one question. I, uh, yeah. I got a great entry point for what I was just talking about with the taxmen because yeah. yeah. we know that. So there was the, the cultist that would looked like a, what are they called? You remember hap, dark or something? Uh, hop, hop, <laughs> There was the cultist that disguised self as a hop, but it was explicitly pointed out that that was not the same one that Pesha pinged when she was like detecting thoughts of the whole party and heard Gordronis like, in one of their heads and then the Hobmadod, you know, just like crumbled and, you know, Sarah right. goes and investigates and that's when he sees, Oh, there's no engine in here. Right. So later in the episode, we find out, I think, I don't know if Sarah just asks Nidus or what, but he's like, how does that work? There's no engine in there. And he's like, Oh, that's because there's like a, a server bank at the right. golden scythe. And that's where all like the computing power is for lack of a better word. And so they're all like remotely controlled from there. Right. So now we have four oh super gosh. Omega taxmen in oh, the no. engine room <laughs> that we know can be hacked because oh, it happened gosh. to one at the party. So these people are so so arrogant to the point of incompetence that maybe <laughs> Alexander was going to say something about that. Even that, like, yeah, like there's, there's been a breach because like the... first night his his duty is like you know I guess that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, yeah, this can't be good. <laughs> so yeah, I'm wondering if you know the gurgling at the end was maybe somebody hacked, for lack of a better word, the taxmen and are now doing whatever they want to do in the engine room. Um, yeah, but anyway, that got that out of the way. So what bring us back to what? There, you were... No, yeah, because wasn't there also a comment too about the taxmen? I think Laren points out that like. Oh, they're missing like the arcane armor's sigil or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Nidus is like, yeah, it has the Don't golden sense. Yeah, and he's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What's up with that? Because that, that even just even more so makes me think like, okay, hang on, what's going on there? To me, and this could be completely wrong, but the way I understood that is that like the arcane sigil is basically like the the mark of approval that this has been tested, and oh, you know, it's okay. not gonna, no one's gonna interfere with this you know like we fully understand how the magic of this <laughs> works could happen here <laughs> yeah exactly and it's like oh basically like oh this hasn't been fda approved and he's like oh it's fine you know it's golden scythe approved that's what i took from it i don't know if that's what it was trying to portray or not but that's fair that just speaks to like lines of failure though that there's you know the only line of defense i guess is yeah like you said the golden scythe server bank um yeah doesn't give much uh confidence right. <laughs> in them so but yeah so they're at the meridian labyrinth um laren successfully uses the um uh astral laywright 
Um, they've built this machine that can presumably take Avalier across Exandria. Um, quick, quick data point, by the way, what is Dominus in relation to Exandria? I think it's just like a, like an, so Exandria is like the world. Right. Dominus, and somebody please correct me if I'm wrong, is just like a, like a continent, like an area of the world. Um, okay. Where is it? What is it present day? Good question. I That's think. That's what I was wondering. Because they I, referenced Grissar, which is Tal'Dorei. They referenced Marquette. Um, so, yeah. I think it's more in the, in the Wildmount area of the world, which is like the opposite continent. And something interesting that um, I saw pointed out was that, you know, Asmodeus refers to, oh, he's like, Dominus is my favorite. I refer to it as the smile of Exandria. In current day Exandria, there are this string of like islands known as the Shattered Teeth. So maybe the smile was decimated during the Calamity and now Dominus is the Shattered Teeth. That's a really cool yeah, detail. Yeah, I, I saw somebody say that on Twitter, so I can't take credit for that. But I was like, ooh. That's cool. That's a, I love that detail. Yeah. Oh my gosh. All these guys are so screwed. I know. I know. So, so here's what I think. I think there was a detail I think I forgot to mention in the recap. Or maybe I did say it. I can't remember. But after the test is successful, the little toy boat disappears to another plane, presumably. Um, Laren basically says, like, it was worth it. It was all worth it. Mm. To me, implying, you know, sorry, Vandron, but, you know, and this, this is why I said mad scientist vibes. It's like, you know, some of you may die, but that's a risk I'm willing to take. Yeah. <laughs> um, presumably he, like in some early tests, was near the machine or something. And maybe the, um, actually, I guess uh, uh, Xerxes' dream, he said that he saw like the petals fall on him and made him sick. Uh, so maybe he was like standing between the two machines. I don't know. I mean, but is it safe to say that Laren basically caused Evandron's death. I think so. I don't know the exact details. Um, like maybe he was even a willing test subject, or maybe it was caught in the crossfire whilst being down there while she was doing some stuff. Um, this this is, I got like a whole spiel or a whole like I want to dive into it with you on the whole Evandron thing. Um, clearly, I think that's. If not, she is in some way responsible for his death. Let me put it out that way. And, you know, the whole like, oh, this first night of Avalier sitting here telling you he'll do whatever he can for you. You've heard that before. So clearly they had like a close relationship. And so maybe he would have willingly tried to help her in this endeavor. Right. And things went wrong or whatever. I think that I feel like that's almost a certainty at this point. But. And this ties back into Asmodeus maybe being manipulative, that dream showing, you know, Evandrin saying people are lying to you. For my money, he's trying to slowly reveal to Xerxes that his closest friends have right. like conspired against him and hidden the fact that right. they're partly responsible for his husband's death. Um, it's also safe to assume that Loquacious knows about this. Agreed. Right? I'm right. curious to get your pulse on this though. Cause I, I okay. think he does. And there, I don't remember the exact moment, but you know, there's that moment where he made a deception check and it, we didn't really know necessarily what it was for. Laren says you couldn't be, cause he says, why didn't you tell me? And Laren says, you know, I couldn't trust you. 
and I can't trust you to keep secrets. Mm-hmm. And he says, you have no idea the secrets I've kept for you. Yeah. Which, and then Brennan has Xerxes roll an insight check and Loquacious roll a deception check. <laughs> yeah. And outrolls him basically. So for the current thing I'm kind of latching on to is we know that later in the episode when they reveal this, the experiments, Laren, Pesha, and Nidus, they kind of tell the rest of the Ring of Brass, hey, we're working on this plane shifting thing. Loquacious is one of the ones that wasn't in the loop on that, which to me, if he was like knee deep in this conspiracy regarding, regarding Evandrin, why wouldn't he know that part of it? So to me, he wasn't aware, but found out like, and maybe even that reporter whose files are missing, maybe she found out and brought it to him. Like, Hey, your wife is responsible for Evandrin's death. And he's like, you're fired. Give me those files. Get out of here. And so maybe that's like, you don't know the secrets I've like kept for you. Maybe he knows this and has covered it up and that's his role in it. And maybe even why they got divorced like maybe, oh, he's a player, he's cheating on her and stuff. Like maybe that's all kind of an act. And really they, like this secret between them was like a cancer. Yeah. I mean, you see your wife who you love is responsible for some noble person's death. Maybe it just changes how you see her for sure. Um, yeah, I think every, I agree with everything you said. I think that's definitely what happened with his reporter was she was doing some, because presumably it'd be a big story that the first night, dies from a mysterious sickness yeah um and so she cracked the case so to speak and i doubt that he was like you know don't tell anyone this i think you know he probably like downplayed it or something and then said like hey you do sloppy reporting you're fired yeah yeah and and then on the side tossed the file um i just i just for me i just think about how do these conversations go before like the out of character conversations like with Brennan. Yeah. yeah, like like okay, let's talk about Loquacious, your character. Here's the things you know. Here's what happened. Yada yada. Because um, he effortlessly, Sam in the in that moment, effort, effortlessly was like, oh yeah, I think I guess she got fired. I don't know. That's a weird file, and it wasn't really suspecting. It was kind of just like, oh yeah, whatever. Mm. And he delivered it so, just Sam. Yeah, that I just thought okay, there had to have been a conversation. Like he's he knows what is in that file yeah. for him to have feigned ignorance so, so quickly and so well. Right. Um, and uh, one point they're all talking about like, man, everyone has secrets. And Sam goes, I don't have any secrets. And Brennan goes, Sam, I know you have secrets. So uh, clearly there was, and this is not to get off subject here, but earlier when, you know, comparing this to like critical role proper, it is kind of a different beast. Cause I think there was a lot of like, like filling characters in directly of to like these big events and big ties that they're going to have, which is not the case for, you know, a campaign proper that's starting low level and, you know, is going to progress to the eventual high stakes and stuff. Are we heading to some kind of reveal that a character interacting with an NPC was actually interacting with Sam with loquacious? Cause he's that would be interesting. He so, has high deception rolls. He's a changeling. He's had two deception rolls. I think we're both over 30. I had this thought, but I kind of, I steered away from it. I think that could definitely be possible. The thought I had it in was if he was complicit in the whole Evandrin thing, which again, for my money, he wasn't, but he found out about it and covered it up. But if he was complicit in it, then what if he shape changed into Evandrin to put on this whole, oh, I'm sick 
charade when in reality, like he was transported to another plane of existence and never heard from again, like because of this experimentation or something. Cause that's what I, in my mind, that's what I want to have happened. I feel like it fits nicely with things that have happened that Evandrin poofed to another plane and maybe he came back and because wherever he was, was sick or maybe he just never came back. But, um, you know, him saying there's some, as Modi is saying, there's some harsh magics on trees of old. Like maybe he was transported to some place. I don't know. I'm, I'm rambling here, but to cycle yeah. back, I think it would be really cool and definitely on the realm of possibility that Loquacious was, you know, somewhere in the story, we didn't know that it was him. Right. We do know Evandrin was, I think Xerxes said he was coughing up like some kind of ephemeral goo, I guess. Um, so maybe, yeah, went somewhere and came back. You have to wonder why he wouldn't just tell Xerxes right. everything, but maybe he was catatonic or maybe he didn't realize, you know, it's like being in a room filled with radiation. You don't even know, you know, that you are, your life is over until, you know, the, uh, it's like that show Chernobyl. If you ever saw it, I didn't, but I heard it was great. Yeah. Well, anyway, it doesn't matter, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, and it, we said this actually in the very first episode when we were describing our reaction to Excelsior, the first episode was Brennan said in the, in the opener of Calamity, he said, this is a story of something, 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 betrayal, yada, yada. And one of us made the comment, okay, it's implied this is about the betrayer gods, but what if it's actually about betrayal between the party? Uh, and I've just, you know, hey, we're pretty good at our, at our guesswork here. <laughs> Um, it feels like that's what we're heading to. It feels like we're heading to something that's going to fracture the ring of brass. Xerxes is presumably finding out what caused Evandrin's death. I think that's what it is going to be. And uh, I almost wonder if Laren's going to have to make a choice on the right choice of, you know, putting aside her ambitions and like saving Avalier or going full force into you know, like this is our only shot. It's the only, it's the only chance I have with the Apogee Solstice. Um, you know, I, and I don't know if one of them is going to be like an explicit baddie, but I think definitely we're heading towards a fracturing of some kind. I a hundred percent agree. And I wouldn't be surprised if they roll initiative on each other and some die, if not, you know, I guess every wouldn't, everyone wouldn't die in that one fight, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of them kill the others before the end of this. Cause to me, Asmodeus, well, again, I think he's telling the truth. I think he's being manipulative. And I think his main thing that he's setting up is for Xerxes to find this out about the Ring of Brass and turn on them. And for him turning on them for whatever reason will enable the calamity in some form or fashion. Because um, it just seems everything is lining up too perfectly for that not to be what Asmodeus wants. Like showing him that vision and keep reminding him people are lying to you. Oh, he was sick. And in this age of Arcanum, nobody, the age where diseases, illnesses and stuff are no longer a threat to mankind. No one could help him. Like seems fishy Xerxes, you know, so. Yeah, and Xerxes is definitely mistrusting where he says, he makes a comment like, I know there was, yeah, I yeah. know there was a way to bring him back. Um, so he definitely has this seemingly a level of contempt for he even calls Avalier says it's not my home. Yeah. Um, and this, this is a super reach here, but like I said, I rewatched parts of this and that was one of them. Um, the, this, the verbiage there, the, 
syntax of did you ever try to bring him back bring him back and if he was transported to another plane did you ever try to bring him back but i'm sure they just meant from death but could be you no know, Xerxes wouldn't know that he was transported right, right but asmodeus could so he was like using right. like the clever turn of phrase um, yeah yeah but again like i said super reach but turn of the screw oh, ooh. <laughs> that's right throwback oh man okay there's there's one what other else? thing that i want to touch on which we can touch on little things or whatever too but there's one main thing i want to make sure we touched on um real quick before wrapping up uh the arboreal calyx yeah and what this exactly is this is yeah. um so what we know is it's siphoning energy it was protected after the matron's ascension and it is obviously somehow a, t- a tied to that ascension or the gods like in some way. And it's called the tree of names. And we do know that she struck out the previous God's name and her own name from existence. So does the tree somehow tie to that? Like, you know, can you remove a name from the tree and that strikes all knowledge of it or something? Um, is <clears throat> we also know that when, when Laren did the experiment on the toy boat, there was a surge of energy that the arboreal calyx sucked in. And I know I'm just rambling here, but uh, I'm wondering, since it's clearly tied to the matron and the ascension and stuff, if this was put in as a failsafe after the betrayer gods were locked away to keep them away. And hmm. since it it registered, oh, there's a, a plane shifting thing happening here bolster the defenses of the prison wall let's say so that's why it sucked in all that extra energy and maybe i don't know maybe that's just what it's for is it's in some way regarded it's in some way related to the prison and that's why always make sure it has its energy don't worry about what it does like that's just there don't touch it It, with the tertiary thing of maybe it also has something to do with names being forgotten from history I think that makes sense in some way because they, the Druid basically says like basically protected at all costs. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it could also have the names of all of the deities and betrayer gods on it. And so maybe like you said, it is connected to the Ascension ritual. And, um, cause I'm thinking also to, um, the, uh, prophecy that said like we can no longer reach its limbs or something to that effect i don't know if that means like the tree gets destroyed but it so we know just totally out of game for a second we know that critical role can't use the wizards of the coast um formal names because of copyright issues mm-hmm. so they call him lord of the hells they don't call him asmodeus they call um they don't call him Paylor. they call him the dawn father um and so it would be like a really interesting um clean explanation for why they can't because if the tree of names is destroyed maybe none of the names Mm. are now remembered and can be called on and um i don't know i mean you know it it totally beats me i have no idea but um, (laughs) no that's interesting i like that yeah i mean i thought that'd be kind of a, a, a neat way to explain why they they don't call on deities by names any longer but um we can agree that it's incredibly important I like how you characterize it of it being like a failsafe and not like the actual door because we know Vespin Chloris didn't use the tree of names in his original ritual. He was in Vasselheim. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and presumably succeeded in whatever he was doing. Right. Um, so yeah, I like how you framed it as a fail safe. Um, but I think Travis said it well, when they realized the tree of names was there, he was like, that's big. Like we have to protect that. Like that's super important. So, um, why is so, it yeah. on Avalier? Maybe that's just where it always was. And when they split the city, they had to take it with them or something. Yeah. Um, and I wonder why the Druids didn't keep it. Why wouldn't yeah. they keep the tree? Right. Because they obviously know the most about it because that letter was from like the head Druid. Um, well, maybe it's like you said, it's a fail safe in it. In realizing what's happening, it absorbs that energy away. Like it siphons it off to, because um, we know that the tree was placed there after the ascension. And so maybe... Well, I think the tree was always there, but the arboreal calyx was constructed after the ascension to like protect it. I could be wrong, but that was my oh, understanding. Yeah. So that the tree was older than the ascension, but the calyx was right. added after that. You're right. You're right. Well, regardless though, that decision to add the calyx was after the, it was one year after the yeah. construct run one year after. And so, yeah, maybe it, it, I don't know, maybe the calyx mechanically in interacting with the tree of names is the fail safe you know, alert, alert, you know, major planar <laughs> event happening, yeah. you know, absorb all energy. So I don't know, but me neither, but I, I wanted to toss that in. Um, or maybe it's been, maybe the tree has been manipulated and, and corrupted. And so it's not like a fail safe, maybe Vespin and whoever else like they, cause in that conversation that they pick up from the B roll footage, Vespin says like, Oh, did you know the tree of names is in Avalier and Loris and Lucretia Holler are like, really what mm. so like there's some kind of lore behind the tree of names maybe they maybe they know they need the tree of names to do what they want to do and that siphoning of energy is because they've actually manipulated it or hacked it in some way and they've just been waiting for laren because we know that grand magister uh corinth Cor Cor yeah something like that was was studying her work right and so maybe they were just waiting for her to run these tests so they could use all of that energy i don't know yeah and i mean where the episode left something's going down in the engine room which perhaps it's to destroy the arboreal calyx and get at the tree or i'm assuming it's for the tree in some way or another i just don't know exactly how yet but well is the engine room the same as like the navigation room because like they're heading to the helm they didn't say the meridian labyrinth so like i don't oh. know if it's the same building or if it's a different building because they said they're heading there and brennan's like you see the building and so so yeah i don't know if it's the same building mm. if it's like you have the engine room then you have like the pilot seat um so i'm not sure about that where was i don't remember her name akami Ro, i think maybe mm. that was it where was she was she at the helm or was she at the engine i think she's at the helm Okay. Well, Which then, I was also like, why are they calling? Why is she calling Laren? Why not call like, you know, super? Well, maybe it was person, a. But. Maybe it was a just a. Word choice. Yeah, but right, still meant the engine room. Um, yeah, she's at the helm, but it's yeah, she's helming from the engine room, right? Yeah, yeah you could be totally right. Because we'll find out for sure. Yeah, yeah. Because if she's not, then it wasn't the taxman, presumably. Right. Right. I mean, I still think you're spot on. I think you could know these taxmen are gonna. This isn't a uh, Chekhov's gun. I mean, I, yeah. I think 
these guys are we're in big doo-doo with these guys um which what a what a hats off to brennan's world building you know oh you want to you want to activate the tax men i'm yeah. just like could you have implied anything more nefarious and yet so <laughs> unassuming like in a name like it was so i don't know about you but from like a dm's perspective like i feel so uh insignificance not the right word not like insecure i'm just so like bad oh at gosh. dming <laughs> i'm just like there's so much more i could be doing like mm-hmm. it's it's amazing how much work these people have put in into building the world and um naturally i mean there it's like a major you know um yeah, it's like it's a, a major media project um multi-million like, you know, dollar franchise yeah i mean they built um, grand magister's Corinth's, I uh, can't keep, keep, keep forgetting his name, but they built his office and it's a set piece that's there for about eight seconds. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so, you know, we would never do that. But um, it's definitely made me think like, I want people to watch it, but I almost, I also don't want my players to watch it because I don't <laughs> want them to be like, hey, so. Uh... And then you can steal stuff and they won't know. Yeah, right. So, which actually, they start, one of them started watching Critical Role and he was like, you totally stole and that's where, and that's where we'll end. <laughs> and I was like, I did. I did because I always ended on a cliffhanger, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and typical Matt Mercer effect, but um, the one cool thing for my players watching Critical Role is, is one of them being like, "Oh wow, I could be doing like so much more with my character." I thought I was supposed to just, like, oh yeah, you know, go from point A to point B. So anyway, all right, what else? What else, man? That that's pretty much it for me. The main things yeah. I wanted to talk about. I am interested in. Maybe it's nothing, but what's who Sarah's wife is? What what she's working on? Why she's not there? Um, his there's not really much is, to discuss uh, there. His wife is more fuel for the tears. It'll be just one more character that. Bro, dies can you imagine like the world crumbling and he calls his son on the friggin' stone, yeah. says his goodbyes? Yeah. That's what's that's what's so painful about this. Like the people who are kind of like morally like you're like. Mm. Like Loquacious, you're a cool dude. I like Sam Regal, but probably okay if you died. <laughs> you know, someone like Sarah, who seems like the actual, like just trying to do the right thing and like has his kids. I'm just like, oh, I feel bad for you, bro, but you're probably dead. So yeah. I'm glad you said this and not to not to get on a whole nother thing, but we were talking about maybe everyone kind of has their thing that's contributing to the dominoes falling and the calamity happening. I feel like everyone does except Sarah. And so I don't know well, if there's still something to come there, or maybe he is just this detective noir that puts the pieces together too late, you know, and that's his kind of, I think Sarah's flaw is he's, he's biased. You, you have people who are doing questionable things who are close to you. And I think it's, it's, you know, it's like the thing of like, um, for evil to exist, you need good men who do nothing. Like it's, it's almost like there's some really questionable things happening. He's like, well, you know, I know them. It's fine. Yeah. Um, And maybe in an unbiased way, not like they're like robbing people, like not like that, but I mean, like he's too close to it, I think. And I think if he was objective in step back, he would realize that he's actually his lack of, you know, stepping in is actually what makes him complicit, like in an, in an inadvertent way. Fair. So this, but. This insanely perceptive detective can't see what's right in front of him. And that's exactly. kind of dooming the whole city. Um, that's a million percent fair. It just, it doesn't seem like he has a secret like almost right. everyone else does. So I'm curious if he does, yeah. or maybe it is just this kind of sad, kind of ironic thing that the detective couldn't piece this together. Yeah. At the time. 
it, I do feel like we're playing like the ultimate D and D version of clue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like who done it, who's going to do it. Um, and did you see the tweet that it was like, just, it was like their scheduling tweet for the week of like what to expect. And they said, they said, be prepared. This week is ex- extra long. Oh no, I didn't, I didn't see that. So they tweeted out that this week is extra long and just to be aware for your, um, like your scheduling or whatever, mm. which I think is interesting because they didn't tweet that last week. Last week was five hours. So yeah, must be how long be like is this six episode? or so? I don't know. <laughs> That's crazy. Must be some combat though. Cause that always slows yeah. down. Um, yeah, only two episodes left, man. It's a bummer for sure. <laughs> this, I, you know, um, I liked EXU the first go around. I liked it for what it was. Um, this, this is definitely going to leave me wanting more of yeah. calamity, the calamity world. And sadly, these characters who presumably aren't going to make it, we presume, I mean, maybe they talk to a 10,000 year old mage and it's a blind woman and it's, you know, maybe Fern getting the, and person having their second dinner or whatever, whatever it was, was actually Laren, you know, <laughs> old and blind. Oh my and, gosh. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, having her I'd lunch. Be, I'd be really curious to see if any of these characters are going to pop up again as the actors themselves coming to the table, you know, in some like ghostly ephemeral way. I don't know. Yeah, but, um, Lord of Hell Xerxes <laughs> shows up to the table. Who knows, right? I mean, it'd be kind of wild. It would be cool. Um, but, um, and then also, you know, the other thing I'm curious about too, we still don't know what's going on with Ru- Ruidus. The skies haven't been mentioned at all, by the way, which mm-hmm. I've, I think it's interesting that there's not like in framing the scene that there's not like a comment around it. Part of me does wonder if Avalier, we know Laren is able to take Avalier to a new plane, I'm trying to battle this with like the comment on like Avalier will fall. I'm thinking, will it fall? Like maybe will it fall from because like, sometimes you know prophecies are kind of like half truths. Like it's not the whole story. Right. Maybe it falls from Exandria's sky, but goes elsewhere. You know. And I actually yeah. saw a comment that said, you know, maybe Avalier's been living on Ruidus Ruidus the whole this whole time. You know, I don't know. But it'd be interesting if those people actually it's like Dalaran and Wow, like they, yeah, you know world's ending peace out guys um there's there's precedent for shit like that and we know she's clear she's her goal is to transport the city so maybe she does and some you know maybe it is in another plane somewhere it'd be interesting to see yeah I, i agree that it might not necessarily mean literally falls to the ground but i think there's a lot of evidence to point that to the that is what happens um yeah, especially you know the dream and like what happens when you look up and you see the ground fast approaching. So uh, yeah. sorry that I was being so hopeful and optimistic <laughs> about our friends. And <laughs> you're like, no, Blake, no. Uh, I just I think I'm still <laughs> leaning towards it. Probably does actually crash. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if the plane shift was successful and you know maybe it crashes to the ground in somewhere in some other reality entirely or something. Yeah. All right, well, yep. super long episode coming this Thursday. Let us know in the comments what the heck's going on. <laughs> What's your yeah. predictions? What are your thoughts? What have been your reactions to the series so far? And uh, we'll be watching Thursday night. And then if it's extra long, we'll be aiming to get this episode, episode three out, um, maybe over the weekend if we're lucky, but probably early in the week. Yeah. So what do we want to do for our thumbnail? Um, I had... 
I had an idea coming into this, and I've now forgotten that because I had a new idea. It's when okay. you were recapping about the ley line, and I was like, oh, we could be like uh, yeah, yeah. like Nidus doing this thing. Yeah, yeah. So cool. we could do that. But again, I had an idea, but I don't remember what it was. So. I like the Nidus thing. Okay. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> All right, yeah. All right, I'm ready. <laughs> nice. All right, don't forget, you can check us out on our Twitter, at the Pixelus, and uh, don't be a stranger. Let us know what you think. So having said that, enjoy this Thursday's episode, and we'll catch you later. Bye, y'all.